Verse 10, and this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. On a, on a good day, it makes your mind spin. What, what would it look like for God to unite all things? You know what all things means? It means all things. All things in Christ. What would that look like? It just makes your mind spin. On a less than good day, or on a cynical day, or... Uh, just sort of a skeptical day, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that'll be great when that happens. Uh, God bringing all things together in Christ. Yeah, that's, that's sure going to be great. But what if in the span of the rest of time, God is bringing all things in union with him, with the gospel as the core? In light of this end, I want us to look more closely at a prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the cross. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture It is a transcript of a prayer that Jesus prays to God the Father Almighty right before the cross, right before the cross. It is the brink of the event that's going to set the rest of redemptive history in motion. So John 17 has Jesus first praying for himself, for his disciples, and here we're about to read for all future believers, you and I, the church. And under the umbrella of what we just read, for what we know God's purposes for the rest of time, Consider these verses, beginning with verse 20. We're going to read through 23. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is so beautiful. We pray that your spirit would communicate in a in a wholesome and complete way, the beauty and the uniformity in these two passages, Lord. Impress that on our hearts. And I pray that the beauty of what you showed me as I was studying this would come through and that I wouldn't get in the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think of diversity, you know, this is a church that's supposed to be diverse on purpose. But even looking around the room, we're we're diverse... I mean, we're all diverse, but we're diverse, but we're not really diverse. I want to I wanna expand your focus of what diversity looks like. I want you to think of Christians all over the world, um, from the one who dwells in a mud hut in a third world country to the one who lives in the lap of luxury. Christians, brothers and sisters that you have all across the world, Croatian Christians, Chinese Christians, Korean Christians, German Christians, Danish Christians, all these Christians all over the world. This prayer that Jesus prays is for all of us as the church universal, that we would all be one. No one's excluded. And I just want to spend the rest of the time we have this morning looking at three purposes that Jesus gives for making you and I as the church one. And before we look at these, it's very important that you don't see these things that we're going to look at. These are not uh, 
prayer requests, but certain realities. Essentially meaning that God the Father did not deny Christ these requests. These aren't things that he hopes will happen. These are things that God is doing through us as his church. Um, It is a beautiful, beautiful way to see scripture. Specifically, when Jesus prays that we are one, he is praying that our oneness would effectively communicate very specific things. And if you're, I don't know if you're one of these people that writes this down, but here's our outline. Jesus prays that we are one so that, first of all, the world believes that the Father sent Jesus. That's going to be accomplished through our oneness. Secondly, that the church may become perfectly one. Talk about what that means. And thirdly, that we would know that God loves the church, you and I, as much as he loves his son. As much as he loves his son. So that the world believes that the Father sent Jesus, that the church may become perfectly one, and that we would know that God loves us as much as he loves his son. These are not commands as if being one were up to us. Jesus prays for them and God answers this prayer. It's one of the ways God is uniting to us in Christ through the expression of the church, through you and I. First of all, Jesus prays that we would be one so that the Father believes that, uh, so that the, the world believes that God sent Jesus. How does that, what does that look like? You think about the, old of the, the, the end of the Old Testament. There's, there's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. And the forerunner comes. Malachi says to expect the sent one. And here comes John the Baptist. And even his disciples go to him. Uh, he sends his disciples to Jesus and say, are, are, you, are you the sent one? Because their ears are peaked to be looking for the sent one, to be looking for the Messiah. And, uh, and I love the way Jesus describes, because there are so many ways that Jesus could say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you read about. I'm the one. I'm the fulfillment. But instead, he describes himself over and over and over as the sent one. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses in John where he uses this language. Jesus says, John chapter 5, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Next chapter, 6. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. At the tomb of Lazarus, John 11, when he's praying, he says, Lord, I thank you that you hear me and know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around here, that they may believe that you sent me. Chapter 12, Jesus cries out and he says, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but in him who sent me. Very important, this language. Look at verse 21. Here's why. Here's why. There is something about the church's oneness that reveals that Jesus is the sent one from God. Not a command to be one. You are one. We are one. Jesus prays for it, and it is accomplished in a way that God alone can only offer. It is essential for the world to recognize that Jesus was the sent one because in doing this, He demonstrates this oneness through all future believers to an unbelieving world. And there's a big part of that that's a mystery that we're just not going to understand completely. But I know where my mind went when I was studying this. Let me say what this does not mean. 
this does not believe that it doesn't mean that all believers are going to all be friends. Either we're all going to agree on everything, that we're never going to have conflict. And it doesn't mean what a lot of people think this believes is that our oneness is going to be narrowed down to the lowest common theological denominator. That is not what this means. What it means is that the nature of this unity that Christ is praying for us to have as his church is so otherworldly. It's so unlike the unity that man is capable of fabricating in and of ourselves. It's so planned and so uniform that it it points to someone else outside of ourselves, even in the commonality that we share. And our being one demonstrates that God has done something to us in Christ, and it is so thoroughly effective because Christians are different. You know why Christians are different? Because God's very spirit lives on the inside of us. It's not because of what we do or what we don't do or how we think or how we do. Oh, I would never do that. That's not what it's about. The spirit of God living on the inside of a person makes them so undeniably different. And our being one, part of the result of what Jesus prays, our being one demonstrates that God has done something to us in Christ. How many have ever been on a mission trip? Either local or around, probably about a third of you. Um, Have you ever been on a mission trip and you meet Christians that you don't have anything in common with except your faith? Have you ever experienced that? Or have you ever met somebody that you knew was a believer but you didn't know them and you just feel like, you know what, I don't know you, but I know you? Have you ever felt that? That's part of the fruit of this prayer. Um, Back before Cindy and I moved to St. Louis, we... uh, Remember when the, the Passion of the Christ was out, Mel Gibson's movie, and some people say, oh, you got to see it. Oh, no, no, don't go see it. Cindy and I went to go see that movie. It wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of going. Um, but we went to see that movie with an unbelieving coworker that she had. And we were going to go and watch it, and then we were going to go somewhere to eat afterwards and just discuss it. And we prayed, and we had other people praying for that conversation, how it would pan out. So we went, we saw the movie, we went to IHOP afterwards. It's the best place to discuss the gospel, you know. Pancakes and Jesus. It doesn't get better than that. So um, she was just blown away at the simplicity of the gospel. We thought, oh, that's going to be so good. And she said, I just can't accept that. You're just saying that you just, you just believe? You just believe in this, this thing that Jesus takes away all your sins and then this is it? Like, well, yeah, I believe you put your faith in. We describe all this. And she said, ah, just tuned out. And we're like, but, um, okay. Wow, that was fast. I mean, we didn't even order yet, you know. <laughs> Maybe we should go somewhere else. Um, she just couldn't get past it. It was too ridiculous to her. But then she re-entered the conversation here. She said, you know what's intriguing to me is, is that instant connection you have with each other. That instant uh, fellowship, that instant community that you just automatically have with every other Christian in the world. And it was just so odd of what Cindy and I thought was going to happen, what it actually happened. Like, oh, we're going to get the, I mean, on the backdrop of that movie, we're just going to get to dive into the gospel, and she just immediately rejects it. But this oneness, there's something. There's something. And I would suggest to you it's at least one way that God is drawing this woman to himself. 
And I say that because this oneness that she envied did exactly what Jesus prayed for it to do. Exactly. Absolutely. It caught her attention. I don't see this anywhere else. I can't explain this. This mesmerizes me so that the world would believe that you sent me. Sydney and I experienced this on a vacation. We went to, to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Many of you are like, Hot Springs, Arkansas? Yeah, well, while all of you are going to the beach, Cindy and I are going inland. Nobody's there because you're all at the beach, falling all over each other, getting sunburned and everything else. Um, nobody is inland, so that's our best kept secret. We went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and we went to a PCA church, and we got invited to the pastor's home later that night to study Psalm 88. Uh, and as soon as he said, we're going to study Psalm 88, my wife Cindy said, oh, I love that psalm. It's my favorite psalm. Now, I don't know what you know about Psalm 88, but let me just... <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a dark psalm. It is a psalm that talks about uh, depression and feeling betrayed and feeling angry. Um, the last line of it is, you've taken away all my friends um, and my closest companion is darkness. So, uh, and Cindy is a counselor, so you have to, but he didn't know that. He didn't know that, so, I mean, that was their out right there. Oh, that's your favorite psalm? Oh, wait, uh, did I say tonight? I didn't mean tonight. I don't want you in my home if that's your favorite psalm. That should have been his cue. I think they were like, oh, that's your favorite? Yeah, come on over. Come on over. So, we went over to their house and I got to tell you, it was as if we'd known them all of our lives. The fellowship was just, and it wasn't just about having a good chemistry. We didn't have a lot in common with them at all. There was something just easy about being with them. And we just folded right in. And it wasn't like, oh, we just have so much in common. From all we could gather, all we had in common was our faith. It was one of the best. It was like getting together with the Shippens. It was like getting together with just somebody that you have a close friendship with and you've been planning that fellowship. It was just like that. It was just like that. And it's one of the demonstrations that points to the Father's sending of Jesus, that all these believers, that he prays for them to be one, they're one. They're one. It's this beautiful, beautiful evidence of this. Secondly, Jesus prays that we're one so that the church may become perfectly one. Look at the first part of verse 23. John 17, verse 23. It is the restoration of what was lost in the fall. God created human beings whole in his image, and this image is to be fully restored in Christ. It's the process we call sanctification. Over the entirety of the rest of your lives, God is making you look more and more like Christ. When Adam sinned, all of man inherited this sin nature. <laughs> People are not naturally good. That is not a hard sell at all. <laughs> it's just not. I, the evidence when people try to say, well, people are generally good. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see how you're going to sell that. Um, apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. And only in Christ do we have any hope of restoration at all. So that when Christ prays for the church that we would become perfectly one. He is praying that the lives of all future believers would be marked by a process of becoming increasingly holy. And this through himself 
to restore in us what was lost in the fall. And I want you to recall in Ephesians, in chapter 1, when we read that God's plan is for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, it is a picture of restoration, of building back to what God created good. And again, it's not a command. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that God is currently doing in us now. And I want to bring your attention to it. This isn't something, oh, I've I got to work on that. Nope, this isn't something you have to work on. This is something that God is already doing in us, through us. Think about it this way. The fact that you wrestle with sin is evidence that you're a Christian. Otherwise, you would not care. You just wouldn't care. People that don't know the Lord, you're trying to... I mean, there are people that not a second thought. And I think, gosh, when they, can, when they see the, the, the effects of that blatant disregard for human life, they're going to be overwhelmed. But I can guarantee you now they could care less. They just don't care. So the fact that you wrestle with sin, the fact that we have a confession of sin and that in the Holy Spirit brings those things that you've done and you bring them to the feet of the Lord and you just torrent up about it, that's evidence that you belong to him. And becoming perfectly one is this lifelong process that has everything to do with God uniting all things in Christ. Thirdly, finally, the world would know that God loves the church as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Look at verse 23, second part of verse 23. Some of you didn't know that this was in Scripture. You know that he loves you. Of course he loves you. But did you know that God loves you as much as he loves his son? Did you know that's in Scripture? I did not know that was in Scripture. It's not the first time we've heard it. I'll read you passages in John. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Two chapters later, he says this, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I came from God. Just think about how much love that you have for your son, for your daughter, for your mom, for your dad, for your wife, for your husband. How much do you think God the Father has for his son? Jesus Christ. How much love do you think he has for him? Christ existed before the foundation of the world and God's love for him is infinite and eternal. And God loves us as much as he loves Christ. When you and I realize the extent to which God loves us, it frees us up to love others. Fully confident of the love that God has for us. In his, son, in his Son, wrapped together in a way that we will never completely understand this side of heaven. Our fellowship with one another has to reflect this. It just does. It just does. And it's amazing to think, I think about, okay, what does it look like for us as believers? He's making all of us one. He's uniting all things together as one. And I'm trying to look for evidences of this. And over and over and over, I'm like, it seems to me in my own heart like we're going the other way. Like we're getting more and more divided. How many different kinds of denominations do you think there are in the world? Oh my gosh. 
what if we just made a Presbyterian? How many different kinds of Presbyterian do you think there are? I, there's the USA Church. We say, oh, wow, they're liberal. Well, you're all Presbyterian. Uh, Cindy and I had a joke going for a while. We would say, we go to Decatur Presbyterian, not the ones that ordain homosexuals church. Because people say, oh, I know what the kind of church you go to. No, we're not that kind of Presbyterian. There's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There's the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. There's the Reformed Covenant Presbyterian Church. And on and on and on. And, and since, even 10 years ago, since Alex and I got ordained, there's at least eight new kinds of Presbyterian. You may not have known that. Always, always dividing, always dividing. I'm like, now we're getting more uniform. Now we're becoming more and more one. I think we're going the other way. Did you know there's a Reformed Charismatic Church? Man, how does that work? <laughs> Cindy and I visited it in St. Louis. We're like, well, this is, you know, you kind of hold your breath when you go in. <gasps> it's just, it's unreal. It's unreal. It just seems like we're going the other way. And we have these pictures in Scripture of what it looks like to become one. And I just want to peek your ears to a different kind of, because I fall into that same trap of, okay, Lowest theological denominator. What if we just went to our brothers and sisters in the Methodist church and we said, hey, let's just worship together. Let's just come together and let's worship together. And we just, can we just agree on these three things? We just are, are three, you know, one, two, three. And they say, yeah, these two are good, but mm, this third one, now we would say this. And it's a deal breaker for us. And we're just like, gosh, what is this going to look like? What is this going to look like? Well, the pictures in Scripture that we have are things like this. The picture of marriage, a husband and wife coming together and becoming one flesh, where wife submits to husband. If you're one of those people that when I say submits goes, gosh, I never like that word, submits. The reason you don't like that word, submits, if you're one of those people is because there's a lots of selfish and abusive men who have misused the context of that verse in horribly degrading ways. However, when Jesus submits to the Father, it's a beautiful thing. And nobody in all of Scripture says, can you believe the way that Jesus submits to the Father? How degrading. How humiliating. How self-loathing. No, because when it's done beautifully, breathtaking. That's what it's supposed to look like. When husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church, likely not giving their lives, but giving of themselves sacrificially. Husbands loving their wives in a way that costs them something to love them. That's beautiful. And husband and wife coming together as one flesh. It's one of the ways God is bringing all of us together, being one. It's a scriptural picture. It's the church being one body so that one member suffering affects everybody. When there's joy in a church, when there's an engagement or a wedding, or when one of you comes to know him for the first time, there is rejoicing. There are smiles that plastic surgery can't remove from your faces. And it's shared throughout the church. This morning, I noticed when you did your call to worship and, and whoever got up here said, Good morning. There was a powerful, good morning. There's joy in this church this morning. I've been in this church where you all come together. Good morning. And there's, a, there's three people. Good morning. 
I, you, and I'm sure Alex says, come on, come on, good morning, and you all come back, good morning, you know, there's four more, you know. There's something, maybe it's a dreary day, but it's just the mood. It's just, I don't know who gets the memo in the morning, but the mood of the church, it's shared. It's shared. When one member suffers, all suffer together. When, when there's joy, we all suffer together. When, um, when Mark Stearns left this church, it was a blow. It was like, oh, gosh, you can't. When the Ross family left this church, it was like, oh, not the Rosses, you know. They're up in Detroit. But it's felt throughout the church. You have a connection with every other person in the village church, but not only in this church, in the entire universal church. Worldwide, worldwide, every other Christian in the world. And often, where's our focus? On the things that divide us, make us different. That's where my focus goes. The different denominations, you think, well, they don't really worship God the right way, you know? So arrogant. Um, You and I share brothers and sisters in hundreds of different denominations all over the world. And some Christians that don't even know what a denomination is. And there are sisters and our brothers. What about in this church? When you think about the things that divide. Do you ever walk around and you see somebody and just to yourself you go, yeah, that one has a clue. That one has a clue. You know what? And you talk to somebody who doesn't know that guy at all and you invite them to be incensed with you because they offended you in such and such a way and they should have known better and here's why they should have known. And you invite that person to have this sort of ostracizing attitude towards them. And just like a family, the more and more we're together, you start to notice flaws in one another. And they are real flaws. They are not like, oh, I said that's not real. Oh, yes, it is. The longer we're together, the longer we treat like family, they are real flaws. And there's invitations to adopt grudges where it seems perfectly acceptable to nurse a grudge. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Wouldn't you agree that it would be tragic that at the very same time that God is using the picture of the church to communicate oneness, that the church themselves were blinded by division? Because God's doing that. Jesus prayed for it, and it is happening. And I know Satan just delights in any kind of division in the church because it appears to mar the physical appearance of Christ. God is making us one, and he is speaking to unbelievers in a way that's powerful by making us one, and the church just misses it because all we see is division. That's just tragic. I could approach any one of you in this church, I'm guessing. I've tried it in other churches. I'm undefeated so far. I could approach any one of you, and you would have a reason why you don't feel like you're a part of this church. You would totally buy into it. I'm not, you know, the village. I don't live in the Lincoln Village area. I'm not a part of this. My, I didn't grow up in this area like the whole, you know, roll tide. And Cindy and I still don't really understand that. Um, it's like a cult down here. They were talking about Alex. You ever seen Alex on game day? He dresses in black and red. I'm like, he does? Oh, yeah, he's so cute. He's adorable. I'm like, black and red? Alex? Man, I thought, okay, well, we're not from the South. We don't really get that. We couldn't really be a part of this church. 
we don't have kids. There's a, you know, a demographic. Most people have kids. But we don't, you know what, there's just sort of a click in this church. You know, there should never be a click in a church. But they're here. You know they're here. We're not part of that click. We're not part of any click. There is some reason, every single one of you in this church, why you don't really feel like you're a part of this church. But here's the thing. Not only are you a part of this church, the Village Church in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, and the Church Universal all over the world, but God himself loves you as much as he loves his son, Jesus. As much as. These that God loves, as much as he loves his son, how can we ever justify not loving one another? Ever. Ever. Think about this. Why would God want us to know this? That we're loved as much as he loves his own son. The more we know God's love for us, the easier it is to follow his commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you will. They lead to life and freedom. We can be confident of this because we know that he loves us as much as he loves his own son. And I just... The, the more we know this, nothing is going to be impossible for us. Absolutely nothing. And I just I want to recap where we've been today just real quick. And, and I hope these beautiful things that just leapt off the page of me at me in Scripture, that it somehow anchors into your heart. Here's what we're saying. God has a plan for your life, and this plan is the gospel. His love expressed to us in Christ. But God also has a plan at the same time for the entirety of the rest of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And Jesus prayed and the church, you and I, right now, today, 2016, are one of the ways that this is already taking place. Specifically, that our all believers all over the world being one would communicate very specific things. That the world believed that the Father sent Jesus. It's happening right now. That the church may become perfectly one and so that we would know that he loves us as much as he loves his own son. When I think about that happening right now, it's not something I have to do, but just be aware of. It was so beautiful when that woman said, I'm, I'm jealous of the oneness I didn't even see that before that day. I guess we do. Huh. You know, you think of a sorority or fraternity. We're brothers and, you know, and we're every other Kappa, Delta, Omega, whatever you have in common. No, you don't. You wear those geeky letters on your jacket. And if you see somebody else with those geeky letters, then I guess you can do the geeky handshake or whatever. But Jesus is praying that you are one. And it's communicating in a thoroughly effective way all over this planet. And you and I are a part of that. I hope it encourages your faith. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is beautiful. And we pray that your spirit would bring these things to mind, the beautiful way that you're bringing all things, all things together in Christ. We don't have eyes or minds or imagination for that, but thank you for the word pictures in Scripture where we get to see pieces of it. And in faith, we greatly anticipate the day when we will witness with our own eyes the beauty of you bringing all things together under one head, Christ. Thank you for making us a part of that. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.